My name is Dr. Chris Jenkins, and I am the CEO of the Orient Society and the host of the Snake Talk Podcast, the podcast where you learn about nature's most feared, maligned, and persecuted animals. I invite you to listen to this conversation, and maybe you'll find that what you perceive as fear is actually rooted in a deep fascination. Welcome to the Snake Talk Podcast. I am joined today by Dr. Kimberly Andrews. I've known Kimberly for, for quite a while. I'm not even sure exactly where we met. It might have been at the Savannah River Ecology Lab, or it may have been at a, a scientific conference. Um, I can't remember when, but it's certainly been a while. And uh, Kimberly and I have very similar interests in that uh, we both really love rattlesnakes and snakes in general, but we both have this, this kind of very specific interest in rattlesnakes. And we're also both very interested in things such as how these snakes move across the landscape, what the, the habitats that they use, the, you know, how roads or human development, how, how things on the landscape influence uh, those patterns of snake movements and habitat. So Kimberly and I have always got along well on, um, you know, on that professional level because we had such similar interests and uh, we've uh, always got along on a personal level too. We've had a, a few drinks off and on and um, I can't wait for this pandemic to be over, Kimberly, so we can have a, a drink and do this in person. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. And yes, it has been a while, more than a decade. I think we were both students and I don't think we had any gray hairs back in those days. Yes. Well, I, I can't see you because of uh, technical difficulties, but I'm sure you are still perfectly blonde. But as you can tell from the, the image you're seeing of me, my goatee is almost completely gray. So um, time time keeps marching on. So... Uh, I'd like to start off by uh, by just having our guests kind of briefly introduce themselves. And, and I want to get into, uh, you know, the history of your career and the places you've been and the things that you've done. But I'd like to start with where you are right now. So uh, would you mind just, just telling the audience, you know, what is it that you do uh, related to snakes for your career? And, and who are you working with and for and, and where are you sitting today? Sure. I am physically sitting in Brunswick, Georgia, and I am faculty at University of Georgia, and I manage the Coastal Ecology Lab at the Marine Extension and Georgia Sea Grant Program. And so we're at an off-campus facility in Brunswick, and we work in the in coastal and coastal plain habitats and I really love working with extension for those of you that aren't familiar with extension we are a science and research-based organization 
Um, but we really pride ourselves on that application and how do we deliver to the managers, the decision makers? How do we engage with the community? How do we see the research through to implementation? And how do we design the research from the um, needs-based standpoint? Yeah, I mean, I've, I've always been affiliated with, with land-grant universities and colleges across the country, and I've always thought that these extension services um, are, are just such a great way for, for the universities to, to provide services to, to our communities. Um, and people may think of, of extension as, you know, uh, you can go into your county office and talk to a, a UGA uh, staff member about how to grow the best apples. But um, I do think there's a real role uh, in extension for some of these ecological applications. You know, people might be very interested in, in rattlesnakes and how they use the landscape, how to identify some of these snakes, how what they can do if there's a snake uh, in their yard, for example. So, um, so I know, uh, Kimberly, that, um, that you just have this really deep passion for, for snakes in general. And again, I mentioned uh, rattlesnakes uh, in particular. Um, and so how did that happen? I mean, uh, you know, again, it's kind of not from our perspective, but from everybody else's is a little bit of an eccentric kind of outside the box interest. And so is that something, you know, you were born with and, and as a child you had these interests or is that something that kind of developed uh, at some point later in life? Well, I, I, I did have it as a child. Um, I wasn't necessarily aware of what I was doing, but if you told Kid Kimberly where I was going to end up, I wouldn't have been surprised and I would have been pretty pumped about it. Um, I still feel pretty in touch with Kid Kimberly. I'm still pretty pumped. Um, finding snake ecology uh, was kind of like Santa Claus coming every day. And I still feel that way. And, um, and there's a lot of hard days. I mean, Working with venomous snakes, um, you're dedicating yourself to a career of a persecuted group of animals, and you have to have a certain um, stomach for that. And you mentioned uh, the value of being an extension, and that was one of my my big passions for going into this was having a voice for animals that are so misunderstood and that really don't have a, a voice. And my particular specialty is in venomous snakes and crocodilians and those animals that are deemed to be dangerous and are frequently displaced. Um, so as a kid, you know, I grew up in, in the rural South in the eighties and there was a lot of habitat and my parents let me play outside. That may have been self-preserving. I had a lot of energy, so they probably wanted me out of the house as well. But in the 80s, you know, we there was, you know, free range parenting those days. Um, and we didn't cut down all the trees in our, our yard. So we, we had creeks in the background. Um, we had a garden. So the first snake I found was a garter snake. I thought it was amazing. I brought it inside to show my mom. It bit me. I thought that was really cool too. She didn't think anything of it was really cool. Um, I learned <laughs> to not bring them inside anymore. 
Um, but you know, in short, I then watched the area develop and I watched the snakes disappear. Um, we grew up going to Edisto Island where my parents now live. I watched the alligators get removed along the coast. And I, I thought things all deserve to have a home and have a voice. And, um, there was an ecological drive for my career, but there also was and still is an ethical um, drive. I, I think we need to to find homes and, and space for everything. Professionally, um, as you understand, as a fellow ecologist, um, it's not just about that ethic. We have a need. These are very important predators in our system. Yeah. So, so you grew up in, in rural South and um, I, I know that you spent some time inland and it sounds like you spent some time out on the coast. Um, I want to say um, that you also had a childhood connection to the Midwest, maybe Ohio. Did you spend some time living there as well or am I remembering that wrong? Uh, no, that is correct. Um, I'm actually first generation Southerner. Um, everyone from my family is from Ohio. Both of my parents came from farm backgrounds and my dad was an engineer. Um, my mom was social work and journalism and my dad was transferred to South Carolina when I was one, which they thought was devastating. Oh, we're moving to the South. Um, so my mom does a lot of genealogy. I am literally, since my family originally came over to this continent, I am literally first generation. And when I fell for wildlife, they thought, where did, where did this child come from? Um, I actually insisted for a while to my parents that I must have been switched at the hospital. Um, and I thought I was really different. Now it's interesting because especially working on infrastructure and the impacts of infrastructure and displacement of wildlife and how do we all live together and design infrastructure and that interface with natural resources and communicating with the public. I've actually merged my passion for wildlife and incorporated both of my parents' skill sets with public communications and, um, you know, my dad's engineering background um, all of this makes sense and none of it was intentional. And that's actually something that I, you know, communicate to people in my lab and students and, you know, sure, have a career plan, think about it, but also don't overthink it, you know, just don't ever underestimate the power of rolling with it and following your heart and following your gut because you'll end up there if you stick with your, you know, that true kid. Yeah. So, so you grew up in the rural South and um, it sounds like you had, uh, you know, a nice settings in terms of creeks and woods. And um, you had uh, what it sounds like confused parents, but, but at least somewhat supportive of, of your interest and in, uh, nature and being outside. And so what I'm curious about is how did that transition those childhood days, how did that transition into the potential for a career? Um, and, and so I guess I'd start there with, you know, 
obviously you you did an undergraduate degree to start with and and so where did you where did you go to do your undergraduate and uh, at that time uh, did you know when you went to college that you wanted to be an ecologist or is that something you you really nailed down while you were there I I did know I I actually um, realized that I wanted to that I wanted to do, well, I, I, I realized I wanted to do behavioral um, work in particular. Again, growing up in the rural South and being a female, the career options that were presented to us in the early 80s were like secretary, mother, nurse, cashier, um, herpetologist, venomous snake biologist was actually um, not in the list. And as you well remember, um, even when we started, there were very few females that were specializing in venomous snakes um, when we started. That's changed um, very quickly, which has been amazing. Um, but so I didn't really understand it was an option. I saw a sea turtle nest on Edisto when I was a kid and I realized someone was there showing that to us. I don't know whether that was a biologist or a volunteer. My parents always told me I could be whatever I wanted to be. And I told them at that time, I'm going to do that. My mom said, oh, that's re- that's nice, honey. And I was like, <laughs> cool. All right. You've been informed. Um. So I, you know, I looked at Georgia and South Carolina schools and I, they have wildlife programs. Um, I, I knew I was interested in kind of that behavior psychology angle and I wanted to either work with humans or wildlife. Um, and I, I went for wildlife. Um, I thought that that would maybe be less disturbing than working with humans. And I thought the world would probably be better off if I didn't go into psychiatry. But interestingly, (laughs) in the field of conservation, I mean, honestly, so much of what we do in conservation, really, I mean, I really feel like I do almost more human work than I do wildlife work. I mean, the the snake works pretty straightforward when it comes to problem solving the human component, you know, is what we really, really have to rack our, our brains over and find that creative solution. So you decided to go more focused on wildlife and you were looking at uh, universities in the South. Where did you end up uh, deciding to, to go? I decided to go to University of Georgia. Um, some of that was an artifact of wanting to get out of state. Um, my older brother was there and I was really impressed with the versatility of their program. And I liked that they had a lot of management options. And, um, honestly, I liked that Athens had a lot of live music and that has, (laughs) that's been one of my favorite things. And honestly, one of the hardest things with the pandemic is, the deprivation of live music. Yeah, I would agree with that. And Athens is a great town with a with a great university there. I think you made a uh, 
very good decision. So, so you're doing your undergrad at, uh, at University of Georgia. Um, and were, so were you in the Odom School of Ecology or were you in Warnell, the, the more applied forestry and wildlife school? Um, well, I wasn't in anything quite yet. And again, I was extremely naive um, growing up. We um, were pretty sheltered. We weren't taught evolution. We were taught about this idea of evolution and we um, couldn't, our teacher couldn't teach us about that in AP biology, but she encouraged us to teach ourselves about it which is also probably what drove me to get out of the state of South Carolina at that time. Like, this is ridiculous. Um, So I got to Georgia, found out about ecology, and um, went into Odom School and actually walked right into Frank Golly's office and um, introduced myself. And um, he took me down the hall and introduced me to Eugene Odom. And I, um, I declared ecology as an undergrad and he and Frank Golly and Eugene Odom were my undergraduate advisors. And it was, um, it it was, that was really special. And then while I was there, I mean, I, I, I learned population ecology from Ron Pulliam and, um, I had a love for reptiles. They introduced me to Jim Richardson Um, I I found Whit Gibbons. Again, Santa Claus came to town every day. Um, And, um, you know, so so began my my journey into the next next phase of of life. So how did uh, you know, so I I know you you worked out at SREL quite a bit um, and and worked with with Whit, who you mentioned so, but, but first of all, how did, you did your, your PhD, but did you end up doing a master's in between or did you go straight for the PhD and how did SREL um, or, or did it play in during your graduate school days or was that something uh, primarily after graduate school that you're involved with? Um, I, I knew that I wanted to go for the PhD. I was really interested in, uh, in, in, uh, in having a, a research lab and I, I really wanted to do my PhD with wit. I really valued his, um, his elevation of public communications and applied ecology and I knew I, I wanted to work with venomous snakes. I was and was trying to do something really different, and um, and Wit was up for that. Plus, I wanted an advisor that was going to be very challenging, and Wit was up. Wit was a very challenging person. The first time I met him was he was giving a seminar, um, and so I was trying to get in with him and I asked if I could help him carry the animals and he handed me the amphibians and I picked up the copperhead instead <laughs> um, <clears throat> to take out to his car. So there are some proving grounds there. Um, and he was trying to retire at that point. So he got some funding from the National Park Service that then um, p- put off retirement for a couple of years. So he offered for me to do a master's. Um, and I ended up getting some, some funding, 
uh, from federal highways, which is when I started doing work on um, roads and transportation infrastructure. And then that ended up taking me into my PhD. And so I did both both degrees with with Witt. And I was actually his last graduate student before he finally did get to retire. <laughs> uh, good for him. And, and many people listening to this probably know who Whit Gibbons is. And we talked about SREL or the Savannah River Ecology Lab. And uh, we won't go into great depth on that, but just so everybody knows that it's, it's a, it's a, a, like, like the title, it's an ecology lab. It's not just herpetology focused or, um, you know, toxicologists, ecotoxicologists, people working on mammals and a variety of things, um, but it's based at a Department of Energy site um, near Aiken, South Carolina, called the Savannah River site. Um, and uh, I'm, I'm very familiar with working in those types of places because my PhD was also done on a Department of Energy site, just one out in Idaho. <clears throat> but, um, but one thing I will say about WIT and not just Wit, but Wit and uh, people like Tracy and Kurt and yourself and, and a long list of people there. Um, it, it really, um, that lab over time really created one of the largest bodies of work on applied ecology with, with reptiles and, and amphibians, you know, anywhere at any time. And that currently, uh, you know, still stands. So, I mean, it's quite, you know, if you're, Back when I was uh, coming up in particular, um, uh, and the time you were coming up as well, Kimberly, you know, if you were looking to like herpetological meccas in the world um, where you ended up doing your graduate work would have been one of those places for sure. Um, so so you, you do your both your master's and your your PhD. What was your master's without getting into great detail? Um, but what was your master's research on? I don't remember. I was looking at the barrier effects of roads. So we were testing different snake species and looking at the propensity of different snake species to avoid roads. So mm -hmm. that habitat fragmentation uh, potential. So that goes back to what you're saying about how do snakes move around landscapes and our you know, are roads an issue? Do they keep them from moving around landscapes? And just as a, just a snapshot, did you find that, you know, say certain species uh, were more apt to, to see a road as a barrier or were certain species attracted to them? Were there any kind of like just big picture snapshots that, that you can share with us on that? Sure. We found what you expected. I mean, those snakes that have avian predators and your smaller snakes, your smaller non-venomous snakes, if they're more hesitant to go into the open, they don't want to they don't want to crawl out into open spaces. Um, also, you know, our snakes on the East Coast, they have more vegetation. They're less inclined to open spaces than snakes on the West Coast. So, I think some of those thermoregulatory behaviors that we see in West Coast snakes, um, we don't see those as much on the East. That's not to say our snakes don't bask in, in roads over here, but we just don't see that to the degree that Clauber and some of the other guys did who really founded some of those initial road cruising observations. Um, and then we also did a second test where we drove vehicles towards the snakes to see how they would respond 
to the vehicle. And some of this is kind of a looking at a detectability type thing and um, whether they would flee or freeze. Um, and as, as you know, a lot of snakes, because they have camouflage, they're used to immobilizing, which is a terrible strategy when you have a vehicle driving towards you. And that's what a lot of snakes did. And, and that increases the likelihood of mortality. I think it also increases our interpretation that snakes are using the road to thermoregulate. They're immobilizing far before, um, you know, we, um, you know, they're, they're already immobilized when we happen upon them. That could just be initiating that defensive behavior rather than them thermoregulating, but that's increasing that risk mortality. So things like this can be used then for modeling and looking at um, differential risk among species. Yeah, so and some of this led to you ultimately writing a book, um, and I believe it was you know with a number of of kind of partners that that helped write the book with you but but you led the effort to write a book on the on the uh, concept of roads and and reptiles and amphibians and so was that at this point was that during your masters after your masters or was that further along when you're doing your phd uh the book actually ended up coming out after the phd um but it did it did start in the masters um, you know, ultimately, my big interest was in habitat fragmentation. What kind of suggested the road thing? You know, I mentioned that I was interested in starting with a PhD. And, you know, fortunately, he, he talked me down to a lower limb and said, hey, if you're interested in fragmentation, like, walk before you try to run in this career deal. You know, look at a smaller barrier. Why don't you study roads? No one's really studying roads yet. And and literally, um, when, when we started working on roads, Matt Oresco was doing some road stuff with Lake Jackson, Payne's Prairie had happened, Scott Jackson, you know, but there really was almost no herp in road stuff. Um, so Matt Oresco didn't have gray hair in that day either. And he, he just won a um, Conservation Hero Award at Southeastern Park the other week. Anyhow, um, <clears throat> so, yeah, so uh, that was, you know, another really big opportunistic thing of, of getting into that is this is a, a smaller um, way to start looking at habitat fragmentation. Um, we now understand that, that roads have, it's not just a smaller fragmentation feature. They're having landscape level fragmentation effects. And for us to look at that, we actually have to look at that as a matrix level effect. So all this other work that I'm doing now with development and industry, those roads are a critical piece of that. But it was kind of an accident that I got into that. And then it became a critical piece in a looking at the PhD. So, yeah. And so your PhD, so was your PhD focused on the uh, canebrake or timber rattlesnake uh, work in coastal South Carolina, or was that a postdoc? I can't remember. That, that was your PhD. That was my PhD. Yeah. Okay. Well, let's, I'm going to put a placeholder there because uh, in a few minutes, that's one of when we start talking more about snake movements 
specifically, that's one of the, the things that I want to do um, a, a deeper dive on. Um, so we'll leave that there. But you're so you're at working with Wit, and you uh, you're finishing your PhD. And then where did you where did you go from there? What was kind of your next step after the PhD, career wise? Uh, well, I um, I had started working with uh, Dr. Terry Norton, who is an incredible reptile veterinarian during my PhD. He was actually doing the transmitter implantations, and um, he had started the Georgia Sea Turtle Center on Jekyll Island, and he was interested in um, me coming to the coast and uh, managing the research program with him on Jekyll Island. They were doing some incredible work on sea turtles and diamondback terrapins, and he wanted to expand the program to snakes and alligators. And I said, no, no, I'm busy doing my dissertation. And um, he ended up twisting my arm and I um, expedited finishing my dissertation and came down to the coast. I thought I was just going to stay down here for a couple years and um, do a, a postdoc and um, I'm I'm still here 10 years later with absolutely no intention to leave. Um, I'm no longer on Jekyll. I was there for seven years, but um, I'm still working with Terry. I actually put a tag on an indigo snake uh, right before this call. Ah, great. Well, Terry's a great guy, as in the sea turtle is an amazing place. We have we talked a little bit about the sea turtle center. Um, in a previous episode, so we don't need to go into great detail, but I do think it's worth, um, you know, you mentioned it, but just kind of putting an exclamation point on the idea that, you know, your tenure at the Sea Turtle Center really expanded, um, you know, kind of the mission, the approach of what the Sea Turtle Center was doing and, and brought some focus to other animals that that weren't sea turtles. Um, so I think that's kind of a, a great thing that, that you did there. Um, and then after the Sea Turtle Center, uh, as you mentioned, you're, you're still living on the coast, but you know, as you told us in the beginning, you're, you're back with the University of Georgia now. So um, when did that transition happen? Um, how, how did you end up um, going from the Sea Turtle Center back to the University of Georgia um, and, and working in this, uh, you know, this coastal office? Well, I um, so I came to the coast in 2010, and I still had the position with UGA. So I actually came down uh, when I graduated. I established a faculty position with University of Georgia. Um, I was still really interested in having a, a research lab. Um, that was why I did this weird PhD thing. I'm really glad I did. My mom summed up the PhD in the best way I've ever heard. Um, I don't regret my decisions. I just don't know how to live with them. <laughs> um, so uh, it was actually this really amazing deal. Um, so, you know, we were able to um, to have... Um, students in this training program and the partnership with the University of Georgia at the Sea Turtle Center and on Jekyll Island. 
Um, and it just, honestly, the program grew and it just, it became a lot. The capacity became too much. Um, and the, the person who's currently running the alligator and rattlesnake work is one of my former graduate students. He was, he was initially an undergraduate or, um, yeah, an undergrad intern moved down to Georgia with me. When I graduated, he worked with me in South Carolina when I did my PhD, did his master's degree on Little St. Simon, graduated, came back as full-time staff. And then when I left, he took over it and he's doing a great job with the rattlesnake work now. Um, sometimes people work in my lab and go over and work with them and vice versa. Um, so it's an amazing program. Um, I had the opportunity in 2017 to go full time with UGA. I came over to the um, Marine Extension and um, just, you know, went on the other side of the intercoastal waterway. Yeah, that's great. And um, yeah, we, we worked together on some of that work, the Little St. Simon's work. And um, that was great. And he is a great, uh, dedicated individual. But talk about your lab before we kind of shift gears. Um, so so you, you now work with UGA. You have this lab that you've been aspiring to build over your career. Um, so when you say you have a lab, what does that mean? You're, you're leading this lab and it's a research lab. Like um, how many people what types of people? Are they students? Are they employees? Are they seasonal technicians? Um, how would you kind of describe your lab in terms of the makeup? Um, well, <laughs> I guess that's an evolutionary thing. I have to say I'm, I'm very proud during the pandemic we've been able to continue um, doing research as um, essential workers. We we do research, but we also do a lot of education. So we do have live animals here that we use um, to teach, um, very Whit Gibbon style. Um, you know, we um, this has been one of the things I've missed the, the most, even more than live music during the pandemic is that moment when someone is so afraid of snakes and, you know, that is, a fear is such a heavy burden. And fear of snakes is, you know, depending on the stats you look at, it it consistently ranks, you know, within the top three or at least top five anywhere on the globe. That's a heavy thing to carry. That's energetically consuming to be afraid. And when you can work with someone through a fear and they can release it and they can have that moment when they realize they're okay. And then when they can switch from I'm okay to, oh, this is cool. And you can be a part of that when they start to like a snake. That is just, that is so powerful. And in some ways, I love that even more than like a cool research finding, you know, and beyond like all the dorky math and things that I also really like. Um, so we, we do education. Um, you know, we do the community engagement. Some of it as well is safety training for personnel. We do a lot of work with gopher tortoises. Um, we work with industry. Um, we work with um, um, heavy, um, heavy uh, mineral surface mining, for instance. 
and uh, we work with wildlife mitigation. So we do surveys and look at priority species and look at where can we avoid impacts to certain areas if we have priority species in high densities or, you know, certain species or are species endangered or are there alternatives or if there are not alternatives or if impacts cannot be avoided, you know, how do we work with state and federal agencies um, on, you know, what are the best conservation and management alternatives? Um, so there's a lot of liaison work and a lot of communication work. Um, so, you know, that's something I think that is sometimes not hit in the classroom when people talk about what conservation ecologists do, even in the research field, there's a lot of communication. There's a lot of liaison work. Um, there's a lot of kind of back and forth. Um, we're doing work with, um, Eastern indigo snakes, um, we're also still working with rattlesnakes being on the coast. Um, we're doing some work with eastern diamondbacks and, uh, you know, continuing on um, some of the stuff that I was looking at with my dissertation, not just movement ecology. I've become really interested in this question of how are snakes um, adapting their behaviors in space and time uh, to changes in, in um in, in habitats. Um, and then, um, uh, just being on the coast, Chris, some of our, some of our work is extending beyond wildlife and looking at shoreline change and sea level rise and, um, just some of those general, general ecology questions and, how our our human communities are being impacted? Honestly, they're they're the same questions that we're asking in herpetology, um, but our human communities actually are being um, displaced um, sometimes uh, just as um, unjustly and abruptly as uh, as we've observed happening to a rattlesnake or an alligator. Hey everybody, I just wanted to take a quick break and tell you guys that reptiles are declining around the world. As an example, turtles are the most threatened group of animals on the planet, with over 60% of all species classified as endangered. The Orient Society works every day to ensure that there's a future for these amazing animals. If you care about reptiles, amphibians, and their habitats, become a member of the Orian Society today by visiting www.orian.org. Well, it sounds like you have uh, a lot of diverse work going on, and, and it's um, all very important work, and glad that that you guys are there doing it. So I want to shift gears now and I want to focus the rest of our conversation on uh, this issue that I talked about in the beginning that I know is, uh, you know, an interest of, of both of ours. And this is the idea of, you know, snake movement, movement ecology, however you want to term it. And, you know, I've always, I've always found that a lot of people that I talk to just, you know, in communities, they, they think oftentimes think of snakes in a very interesting way. They almost think of them as like a 
just as kind of like maybe a like a I don't know if a varmint's the right word, but they think of them as an animal. They're just kind of everywhere, randomly appearing. Um, and but then when they think about another animal, say like a mallard duck or an elk, you know, and they they think about and know about oh mallard ducks pick up and they fly from Canada down you know all the way. Uh, down through the Mississippi River drainage, or they think about elk making these big migrations in and out of Yellowstone National Park. But, um, you know, one of the points I always try to make to to people is that, you know, snakes aren't these random things that are just kind of everywhere on the landscape put there with the purpose of, of hurting you as a person, that they're, they're an animal, they have an ecology, um, there are certain snakes that make migrations, for example. So, so anyways, that's kind of just uh, my lead in to, to snake movement ecology. But could you give us just a high level um, overview about how you think of snake movement ecology? Um, just kind of where our current you know knowledge uh, as a field is, and then we'll dive into some uh, you know some some details about some of the work you've been doing. Sure. I, um, I continue to be impressed with uh, how calculating snakes are and how aware they are. Um, I mean, you think about it, these are animals that they don't have any arms and legs. So they have to be pretty strategic and, uh, you know, and how efficient they are. Um, they also are pretty vulnerable in, in a lot of ways. Again, not having any arms or legs have a lot of surface area. Um, against the ground um, and pit vipers in particular being ambush predators or sit and wait predators. Um, site selection, microhabitat is everything. And they really have to be preservationist about um, that energy expenditure, especially females. And that's one of the things that I really love about spatial ecology is just watching that decision making. Um, and you know, with telemetry, you kind of get to be the spy. Um, I love the advances in kind of remote telemetry. Um, I mean, we're, we're still going to need to watch them to gather some of that behavior information, but to be able to do more of that remotely and to reduce our presence so that we're not impacting the snakes as much, I think is really important. Um, well, let's let's um, we're going to get into that a little bit later, but let's talk about that, because that, you know, a lot of people listening will understand what telemetry generally is, but a lot of people won't. So let's just say let's go back to the time, like, say, during your uh, Ph.D. work. And again, we're going to talk about that in some detail. But um, just thinking about the technology and thinking about standard radio telemetry. Why don't you just give the audience an overview of, of what it is and, and how it works and what it allows us to do with snakes? Sure. So when we talk about radio telemetry, we're talking about a, a VHF signal and by radio um, you know, literally think of it like a radio, like a radio signal. I mean, I, I equate it. Every snake has kind of a different one, just like you or I these days have a different cell phone number. Um, there's a distinct signal that we would have a receiver put that in. And we literally get a beep, walk in the direction the beeps louder. 
And um, ideally, you find your snake. Ideally, you get a beat. You have a certain range associated with it, and you walk around sometimes for a long time um, on on feet on your feet and find the animal. Um, probably the next generation is going to think it's insane. We walked around and actually looked for our animals. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, basically, yeah. So the animal has a device on them, or in the case of snakes, um, especially historically, in them. Um, and then that device is transmitting this radio frequency that you're talking about, giving the beeps, and then you hold the receiver and walk around the landscape trying to find the snakes. And um, it's uh, a lot of fun walking around these landscapes, and, and you learn quite a bit about these animals. And I always loved that. You know, I did a lot of telemetry at different times, but certainly during my dissertation, you know, I was in the field every day, almost with snakes doing telemetry. And, and so it's a very enjoyable process and you learn a lot. Um, however, you know, there are negative sides to it. There's potential impacts to the snake. You're, you, you know, we've historically done surgery to put uh, transmitters inside of snakes. And um, so there's potential impacts and how that could affect, uh, you know, what we're seeing, what we're learning about the snake. Um, you know, there, we, you know, have to be there and in person to go figure out where the snake is. Um, and, and oftentimes many people using this technology from my perspective, come in, uh, too close to the snake too frequently. Um, those could have effects on the snake and, and what they're doing. So there's a number of drawbacks with that technology. And what I'm leading into Kimberly is, some of these new technologies, technologies that have been used with other types of animals, but until recently um, have not been used very successfully with snakes. So why don't you just introduce us uh, to this new technology that I'm talking about and, and this idea of tracking animals remotely. Okay, thanks, Chris. Yeah, the new technology that we're currently trying, it's fairly new, we're still um, really within the, the first year that we're trying it on uh, eastern indigo snakes. And I also want to say that the Orian Society and Chris are a collaborator um, on this project. We're working at a, a field site where they're actually also doing population surveys. Um, it's, um, it's using, so UHF is a different kind of frequency. Um, it stands for ultra high frequency. This is a similar frequency, like what police scanners use or aircraft. Um, so it's a, a high, uh, frequency that gives us a very, um, accurate location and it's called automated telemetry. So we're working with a, a manufacturer called Cellular Tracking Technologies. And one of the things I think is so cool is um, this is actually a bird tag. Um, so it's very lightweight. There's no battery. So we don't have to implant it internally um, like you were talking about. Um, we actually are able to attach it to the tail of the animal. So it's an external um, external tag and it has a solar panel on it. So it means we're only getting uh, data on the snake during the day. But as we know with indigo snakes, that they are primarily 
Um, I mean, we think they're probably exclusively diurnal. We haven't really done a whole lot of nocturnal checking on them, but um, we we know they're at least predominantly um, diurnal. Um, so it, it's it's powered by a solar tag, and we have what we call a grid. We have nodes throughout a landscape, also solar powered, and then we have what I call a base station. And when the snake goes past these nodes, um, they detect the tag. It uh, routes the data back to a base station where the data are stored. And every three hours, it uploads that to a cellular signal, hence the company's name, Cellular Tracking Technology, sends it to an online portal. Um, I can get on my phone right now and I can look at which snake tags are checking in. I can look at the health of the nodes. I can look at the charge of them. Um, And so, you know, this remote tracking technology and automated technology, uh, I think is is really going to be uh, an evolutionary progression of how we're studying wildlife movement in general. Yeah, and I would like to say uh, just to the audience that um, that this is a very uh, you know these are these are some of the early tests of this technology. This is not something that's being used widely across um, snake species. You know, it's been done very working closely with state and uh, federal agencies um, on this particular animal uh, in this particular place, and and so it's definitely kind of a, a test. Um, you know, it's not that we, we have a, you know, you have every snake, indigo snake out on that landscape with one of these transmitters. But let me ask you about, so people may be familiar with um, a remote tracking of animals um, using uh, where those signals are sent through satellites. Um, and But in this case, you're using this grid that you mentioned and that grid is using the cellular network. And so why, what are the, is that a limitation? Is that a positive? Um, and uh, why are we not able to use the, the satellite network like other species studies? Uh, I wish so badly that we could. Mm-hmm. It is a limitation. I mean, it means that if a snake goes off the proverbial and literal grid, that we we lose signal on it. And so you can imagine for an indigo snake that literally um, can move, you know, miles in literally a day um, that, you know, we can't get their entire home range. So we're focusing, you know, specifically within an uplands area because we want to look at, you know, their use of gopher tortoises that we have moved recently to say how quickly do they find these tortoises when we've released them so it's a very specific question so it's a very you know if you have a defined question this is a good technology but not as much for a I would like to come in and learn broadly about the spatial ecology of this population I think that's a very important definition Um, For snakes, you know, this is a tricky thing. It's like you were saying with the VHF, you know, where we had to implant them in their salomic or body cavity because we can't just epoxy it to a carapace like we can a tortoise shell. 
Um, having an onboard battery with a satellite, those are still too heavy. They're still too expensive. We don't have a good way to attach them to snakes. Um, you know, they can fall off easily. We don't get that kind of funding with snakes yet, you know, even with endangered species. Um, it's it's a cost and it's still a miniaturization issue. I think we'll get there, um, but not yet. For now, this is what we have. It's progress, but. Yeah, and the greatest limitation, and you were hinting at it there, with, with working with snakes or anything small and using really almost any type of, uh, you know, tracking technology, you know, telemetry type technology, the battery is the big limiting factor. And, and so that's, you know, a lot of these other technologies are now very micro, if you will, but the, the getting the power source and getting that small enough is a huge uh, limiting factor. So let me ask you, so you externally attach uh, these to the snake. Um, as everybody knows, snakes uh, shed their skin as they grow. Um, have you had issues around shedding and an external attachment? I'm assuming you are, are physically, I mean, I know that you're physically attaching it to the animal. So it's not just shedding off. So it, when a snake sheds, what have you seen relative to the transmitter and shedding? Interestingly, that is not uh, an issue. This is a method called a subdermal stitch that was developed in 2017 by Riley and some co-authors. Um, and, and and Terry adapted this. The first couple snakes we did, um, we actually caught an individual that was uh, close to shed. And we held it until it had completed the shed so that we could could see how it shed around the tag. And then the first couple snakes that we released, we recaptured after the shed just to see if they could shed completely. And it is amazing how fully they shed around it. And since this, the tag is um, fully free with the exception of that attachment under the subdermal scales, it's, it's able to shed around it. You know, I, like I do wonder, um, you know, for like a larger heavy body pit viper, like a, you know, a big diamondback, um, you know, would that be a, a, a greater issue? We have piloted this on three diamondbacks um, where we're, because we're interested in, in um, applying this with some research on a barrier island with them. So we've, we've tested it on, on three individuals there, but didn't see an issue. Um, this is an external tag. It's not meant to stay on them forever. It's not going to stay on them as long as some of our internal transmitters did, Chris. Um, you know, what we're looking at here is probably a four to six month retention. Um, so we're looking at a seasonal capacity. Um, also, we're attaching these tags so that they are a little loose. So that if they were to entangle on something, you think about an indigo snake moving through a palmetto. So if something does snag, we want that tag to break away rather than entangle the snake. Or if something's got to give, we want it to be the tag, not the snake. Yeah, that's great. Well, it's a it's a fascinating technology. I think there's a lot of uh, 
potential there. And I think this remote tracking in general um, will get used more and more into the future with snakes. So it's exciting. So we've talked about kind of spatial ecology, movement ecology generally. Uh, we've talked about some of the technologies we use to study that in snakes. And the, the last thing I wanted to do before we begin to wrap up is uh, is, is kind of uh, use uh, some of your work uh, just as an example so the audience can can learn a little bit more about the types of things that you can learn and the values of, of understand this type of information. So I wanted to, I wanted to take you back to your uh, PhD and take you back to coastal South Carolina. Um, and I won't mention the name of the place, but um, I don't know, maybe, maybe you're comfortable with that and I'll let you do that if you are. But, um, and I, uh, First of all, give us just a real brief description of the setting. It's kind of like a unique, uh, a unique setting, almost like an eco-friendly development or something like that. And that's kind of the backdrop where you're studying these snakes. So tell us a little bit about the place, if you would, and how it lays out uh, from a landscape perspective. Sure. Um, this was a real uh, serendipitous opportunity. It was a 20,000 acre piece of property that was going to be uh, developing a high end residential development. And they wanted to do, uh, you know, a, an eco friendly um, conservation um, landscape where, you know, most of the property would would actually be put into easement. And even the neighborhoods that would be developed, you know, they would have um, undeveloped yards and um, and that they were going to work with the homeowners on education rather than removal. So, um, you know, aside from my research, you know, part of my role there was if a rattlesnake was in someone's yard, I actually went out and worked with the landowner on here's what's going on in your yard. Here's what the snakes would be att attracted to. If you have a wood pile, push that back. You know, here's where you can design the play space for your kids and your dog. And, um, and it was really like designing the backyards for multi-use and working with them on, um, on those safety elements. And it was such an experiment and it worked and people were invigorated. And the landowners that would actually go out with me to radio track the snakes. And that gave them a visual of what the snakes looked like in the wild, which as you appreciate, they're so extremely camouflaged. And it yeah. also gave them a lot of peace of mind because they would, for one, it, it would take them five minutes to see the animal. Like, no, it's right there. It's right there. And then everyone was so shocked that they could stand right next to the snake and the snake wasn't aggressive. So it was experiential education. Yeah. So that's a great, important part. It's an interesting community as you talk about it, but like, so getting back to the movement piece, you have this landscape, this 20,000 acres, you've got um, human development there. So you have roads, you have residential, I'm assuming there's like a clubhouse, maybe, I don't know, maybe there's a golf course or some other amenities. And then you have a large portion of those acres 
uh, kind of protected, uh, set aside um, with conservation easements, um, you know, uh, presumably in, in forest type types. And then you have these canebrake or timber rattlesnakes that, that live on this landscape. And so for your PhD, um, you were putting radio transmitters inside of these snakes. And uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but you were studying um, you were studying how the snakes were using that landscape uh, in relation to all of these factors of, again, roads, residential areas. And so, um, first of all, correct me if I'm wrong, um, but then uh, tell me a little bit about what you learned about rattlesnakes in this kind of uh, low-density residential environment. You are correct. And the unique thing was I was able to track them as they were developing. Um, So I was able to watch how the snakes reacted to that development. Um, The good news was they did adapt their behaviors. Again, these animals are smart. They didn't just sit there and get run over. So that was one of my questions. Do they shift their home range? Um, which we call, you know, home range fidelity. Um, one of the thoughts that we had originally have with fragmentation is that as things get developed, their home ranges get smaller. And we actually saw that home ranges get larger. And this makes sense, right? It's sprawl. So as resources become, um, as resources sprawl, they have to sprawl. So it was kind of, I did my PhD, but it, but it took me back to my master's. So um, snakes may adapt their behavior, but how many times, this is a long, relatively speaking, this is a long lived animal. How many times can a male rattlesnake cross a road during breeding season? So eventually over time, and I was tracking some of these animals for multiple years, Eventually, most of the males ended up getting hit on roads. Even in a conservation neighborhood, there were still visitors. And this was in an area where I was working to do education. And I had residents even educating visitors saying, we don't kill snakes here. So we were almost dealing with this exceptional scenario. I mean, some people were even saying, "You're this isn't good science. You're manipulating the science because normally people would not be intervening. But it's like, hey, if I can get people to not kill the snakes, I mm-hmm. am not going to not intervene to have a more representative situation. So we saw that there was um, low home range fidelity, meaning that they would adjust their home range but eventually, you can only cross a road so many times. So low home range fidelity, increased um, risk of mortality. And so that kind of goes back to snakes will adapt their behaviors. Good story for development. Good story for climate change. What does that mean? If there's a risk, if there's a cost to adapting, what does that mean? Not just for snakes. But animals in general, movement's expensive, movement's energy, movement means higher risk. Um, And this kind of goes back to that big question of wildlife um, and some of the legacy population questions that we're asking with long lived animals in general. There's more there's more to life than just staying alive. Yeah, interesting. So you've got 
you've got this snake community. They will, um, I was going to say adapt, but I shouldn't use that word, but they will kind of shift their, say, home ranges and movements um, based on this development. But even at that, you were seeing relatively high uh, mortality rates. So what's your, uh, I know scientists, we don't like to speculate that often, but, you know, over the long term, especially with an animal like a timber rattlesnake or, you know, canebrake that has such a low reproductive output, um, uh, what, I mean, do you think a, a snake population in that type of setting, this real low density uh, residential development, can you speculate on? Do you think over the long term that that population will be there? Or do you think over the long term that, you know, developments like that uh, very well could cause local extinctions of their populations? Oh, I hate not being an optimist, but I, I, it's like, I feel like I need to be an optimist, you know, because I'm a, a I am a, a conservation ecologist, but I really struggle with the math on that. Um, you know, because, it, and um, I, I commend you for being careful with the word adapt. We do have to be careful. Um, it's an exposure thing. Um, even if they, even if they learn to avoid crossing the road, say they flush to the edges, because again, these are ambush predators that eat mammals. So they flush to the edges to forage because that's where the mammals are. They then have increased exposure risk. So how many times can they do that before people inevitably start seeing them? And then they end up getting killed. The more that we start getting into the populations of these longer lived snakes, especially these big snakes, and honestly, the crocodilians too, we actually start realizing, we get a healthy perspective about abundances, and especially with with males in your crocodilians and snakes and females in your turtles, you start pulling those animals out and the population does not take that long to fall apart. Those are your non-expendable reproducers we don't have that many that we can pull out of these populations before they start to fall apart. And I can tell you anecdotally from the place I did my dissertation, that was a decade ago and they don't, they don't turn up that many snakes. I couldn't go back there and do the same study currently. I wouldn't be able to get the sample size. Interesting. So, I mean, what it maybe points to, um, is, you know, and I, I kind of think similarly with these types of, again, long-lived, low reproductive output snakes. And, um, you know, they're built for the long game. They're built to replace themselves in the wild. These females are built to live, who knows, maybe 50 some odd years or more. And so, and so when you take them out, it, it just, populations can crash very quickly. Whereas you can kill every mouse on that island and um, you're never going to get rid of the mice. But um, what I was getting at is, is maybe this points to that one of the greatest strategies for the conservation of, of these large bodied, long lived, low reproductive output snakes is to, you know, the conservation and, and management of relatively large intact landscapes, which we obviously cannot have everywhere. But, um, but, you know, thinking about conservation planning for these species, maybe that's a better place to put some of our resources. So. Um, anyway, I'm just, I'm just kind of speculating there, but, uh, but yeah, well, 
interesting study, interesting place, amazing animal. Um, do you have any any final thoughts or any final thing that you wanted to mention on anything to do with, with kind of uh, spatial ecology, snake movements, uh, and, you know, whether it be relative to the technology or, or you know, the South Carolina study we were talking about? Uh, you know, one thing, and at the, you know, risk of kind of sounding like an old person with gray hair, I, I love where this technology is going, but we've got to still get out there and walk around and look at these animals. We cannot lose natural history and go total armchair ecology. I mean, you think about one of the things I love about studying pit vipers is you don't see pit vipers all that often. So you become an amazing ecologist. You learn the plants, you learn the landscapes, all that I learned about those habitats while I walked from snake to snake. And it's important to not disturb the snakes, but we can't lose the observation of animal behavior and lose the habitats or we're not going to really be, we may, we may end up with thousands of data points, but what is our interpretation going to be? And, and that is something that I worry about with, with the, you know, with all the modeling. So again, at the risk of sounding like an old person that's kind of getting a little soapboxy, um, you know, I just, I, I, just the, the love for natural history, um, I do think that's one thing the pandemic's brought out, you know, people going outside and just really craving that outdoor outdoor space, uh, I think has been a silver lining. Yeah, well, I'm I'm pretty sure that I'm older than, than you, Kimberly, and, and I think you know that I spend, you know, I try to spend at least a part of most days uh, in the woods, and I think there's incredible value there, and, and I dread the day where we just have a uh, conservation natural history app on our phone. And that's the only way we, we interact with these things. I, so I agree. I think it's really important. And uh, yeah, it's just a great way to kind of punctuate everything we we're talking about with snakes movements and, and ecology. So, um, as, we, as we finish here, um, let's just imagine that, that, you know, the pandemic is over and uh, you and I are sharing that drink that we were joking about at the beginning and sitting around a campfire somewhere, and you are going to tell me one of your best snake stories. <clears throat> Where would you go with that? Okay. Um, I'm glad you told me about this ahead of time, because this is worse than asking someone their favorite song. <laughs> um, I decided that my best snake story, this was in South Carolina, and it was with a canebrake rattlesnake. And um, I was um, I was tracking a snake, and there were construction workers, and I came up on the snake, and they were about to kill the snake. And I stopped them from doing it. I was maybe a tad bit uh, emphatic. Um, but I, I talked to them out of killing the snake. And I talked to them for a while about why to not kill the snake. And actually, by the end, they thought the snake was really cool. 
and they were asking me a whole bunch of questions about it. And I gave them my phone number and they started calling me every time they found a snake. And they actually ended up finding three more snakes that I ended up implanting for the study because these were the people that went in first. So they were clearing some of the vegetation. So they had the best eyes on the ground for stirring up the snakes. They also were the ones that were most likely to end up killing the snakes because they were the first ones on the ground. And they started rumors among the entire construction workers that they legitimately believed because I had transmitters in it. They're like, hey, this chick, they're like, wait, so you know where all the snakes are? And it's like, well, yeah, I can just put their number in and I, I can find them. So they started telling everyone there is this chick on site and she knows where all the snakes are. So watch out. You If you go to kill a snake, this weird chick just shows up, which was one of the best impositions ever. So like getting a rumor started that you're some weird person who will defend the snakes. So go for what works. Don't be afraid. We can be scientists. We can be good, objective scientists. It's okay to be an advocate and a defender too. That does not take away from the objective power of your science to love what it is that you study. You can have that separation. And in that situation, that really taught me that we can choose to inspire. You know, we talk about changing and we have to be really careful. Nobody wants to be changed. I don't want anyone to change me. Be really careful when we talk about changing people. We want to inspire people. Everyone wants to be inspired, especially now with the pandemic. Things are kind of icky now. It's a good time for an inspiration. Everybody needs a pick-me-up. Let's pick-me-up. Let's inspire people to love snakes and start some weird rumor about us. But, you know, let's... Let's not tell people we're going to go out and change them. Let's let's inspire them. So I I really love that story. I I think about I think about that a lot. There somebody's probably still telling people about that. And hopefully that guy's still not killing snakes. Well, I love that story too. Uh very well, uh, well said. So, if people uh, if people want to learn more about your lab or some of the work that you're doing, are there certain places they can go uh, to learn more or to follow the work you guys are doing, whether it be social media or websites? Uh, sure, we have a Facebook page. If on Facebook, they can look for Coastal Ecology Lab. Um, and that's our, our UJ Marine Extension and, and Georgia Sea Grant Facebook page. Just put in Coastal Ecology Lab and we'll pop up. We have our, our email uh, there or they can drop us a, a messenger. Um, but we, we post on our different different projects. And uh, anytime we have any, any jobs, you know, we have um, internships, we have undergrads, we have grad students, we have seasonal technicians, we have staff positions, various things that, that come up. So we'd, we'd love to, to hear from folks. We're rolling with the times as the times roll us. <laughs> <laughs> 
Well, great. Uh, thank you so much, Kimberly, for uh, spending some time with us today. Thank you and so much for having me, and thanks to all the listeners out there. Great. And I wanted to thank those listeners, our audience, and, and remind everybody that snakes are animals, too. And it's a privilege to just one in the wild. Mm-hmm.